And thanks, Chip, for reading that. That is a combination of Genesis and Matthew, which is um, characteristic of about 11 Sundays that started two Sundays ago and continues for um, another eight, where we're trying to see how the Old Testament and the New Testament speak into one another. So we'll be doing readings both from Genesis and Matthew for a while. Um, Though we have just come out of a a three-part series that lasted uh, through last week. So if this is your first week here, sorry, you missed out on that. However, what I wanted to tell you was that even though that three-part series on discipleship ended, this reading this morning kind of spills over. It's a ripple effect of the call to discipleship that we've been discussing. So we talked about being called into this one-on-one relationship with God, called into the body of believers. And then last week, it's this call as disciples to take those and put them into action. Because faith without engagement is dead. We're called to take those pieces and then live it out so that the kingdom of God might be seen in how we live. And so... Part of what happens now is discussing some of the ripple effect of when we make the commitment to live out that way. So this passage this week falls right on the heels of what took place last week. And I I challenged you last week, for those who might have been interested, to um, take the black notebooks, which you still can this week if you would like to, and the community folders that get passed down, and I'm not even sure I see them this morning, so they may not even be out, but was to put um, some names of some people into whose lives you hoped to be the good news. People for whom you'd be praying, having no idea how God might want to use you, if God wants to use you at all in any particular fashion, but just some individuals that you care deeply about and how you might be praying for them and having the opportunity to live into their life as good news. I just wanted to tell you that um, I wrote down two names, and um, it was as if God just immediately said, okay, you've stated your expectations, it's time to get into the batter's box. And I thought, to myself, because the need sprung up immediately with one of the individuals that took me to a nearby community to engage in trying to deal with a crisis on Tuesday, I kind of thought that God would give me a couple weeks just to pray my way into this. (laughs) But it was as if right after writing it down, it was time to step up to the plate. And it was hard and amazing absolutely amazing. I had somebody come up to me after first service said, I started to stand up and say, I have a similar story. Um, I wrote down one name in the notebook and um, three days later a phone call took place and the person told me that the answer to prayer had already come. And he said, I, I don't I didn't even know that anything was going to need to take place that fast, but it did it, and God was moving before I even realized it. It is incredible when we set our expectations that God says, okay, I hear you have expectations. Let's begin to participate together. Not on our own strength, but on what God does with us 
as partners. But the journey is not always easy, and that's part of what the Scripture passage this week is about. So in Matthew chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, we hear this message of Jesus speaking. Matthew records it, but it's Jesus still giving instructions to his disciples. And he says to them that the student is not greater than the teacher and the servant is not greater than the master. So if they call the master Beelzebub, what do you think they're going to call you? That's the gist of these two verses. Well, that's great news. This passage is filled with those kinds of statements that it almost feels like it is saying something that's very different than what Jesus says in other places. This string of comments that almost makes you just kind of want to say, okay, I'm not sure that this is what I signed up for. But let me once again give a context to this statement. Let's go back to chapter 9. We haven't studied chapter 9, but I want to look at it because it's essential to understand what it is that's happening in 10. In chapter 9, Jesus is going about fulfilling his calling, which is to preach, teach, and to heal to preach the good news, to teach in the synagogues, and to heal the people of various illnesses and diseases. And so in chapter 9, verse 3, there's a person who's brought to him who's um, not doing well, and he's on a mat, and Jesus sees him and says, your sins are forgiven. Cheer up. And they, we're not exactly sure who they are, but we assume it's a combination of the religious leaders and other onlookers who have some type of authority, they say he's a blasphemer, Jesus. That's what they call him, a blasphemer. Jesus proceeds to heal the gentleman, tells him to take up his mat and go his way. But because he said, your sins are forgiven, they called him a blasphemer. That was in verse 3. In verse 9, coming on the heels of asking Matthew, the tax collector, to become a disciple, Jesus goes to dinner at Matthew's house, and all of Matthew's friends come. Well, because Matthew is a tax collector, he doesn't have too many friends, and most of them are also tax collectors, and so they say, oh, look at Jesus, he's with tax collectors and sinners, which is basically the same thing. I'm not saying that. That's what Scripture is saying. Tax collectors and sinners. And that's their comment about Jesus. Well, we go on to chapter 9, verse 14, and they complain that Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. Jesus responds to them by saying, well, because the bridegroom is present, there'll come a day when they are fasting, but not now because the bridegroom is here carries on into verse 24, and Jesus goes to the house of a young lady who has passed away, and Jesus goes to her room and says, she is not dead, she's sleeping, and they laugh at him. He proceeds to bring her back to life, 
and their laughter turns to bewilderment. And then in verse 34, we have a demon-possessed man brought to Jesus who cast the demons out, and their response to that? Well, he casts out demons by the power of the prince of demons. So here's what's happened to Jesus in chapter 9. He's called a blasphemer. He eats with publicans and sinners, they say. His disciples aren't fasting. They laugh at him, and they say that his power comes from the prince of demons. Jesus then sends out his disciples to go to all of the towns and villages in Galilee. And in the power of the Spirit, not with anything you take with you, in fact, don't take anything with you, my Spirit will be with you and I'll provide, my Father will provide for you. Gives them the power to do all the things that Jesus has been doing. But Jesus then offers this caution. I just want you to know that if they called me Beelzebub, Watch out for what they might call you. But don't get anxious about that. In fact, he goes on to say, don't be afraid of them. Instead, what you hear at night, speak in the daylight. What you hear spoken into your ear by me in a whisper, shout from the housetops. Live transparently. Live honestly. Don't be afraid of what others will say. That's the worst kind of way to live. Instead, let your honesty speak for itself. That's how I'm calling you to live. Because the truth will win out. Those things that are done in secret will be shouted from the housetops. And in some ways, that's actually a mercy. Because often it's the things that are in secret that keep us imprisoned. Well, this whole piece of fear, Jesus takes it one step further. He says, don't be afraid of those who can simply harm the body. That sounds great, sounds like a wonderful spiritual truth. I have to confess, it's really difficult for me to live into because if somebody is threatening the body, it's hard not to pay attention to that. Jesus is saying, replace that fear with a fear for the one who can actually destroy both the body and soul. I'm not sure how much that helps me, but stay with me on this for a moment. There's only one who can do that. God. Only one. So Jesus is saying, the fear that you have for someone else who can actually do you harm, recognize that they can only do you physical harm. They cannot eternally destroy both your body and soul. There's only one who can do that. That's God. Shift your fear to where the fear really belongs, and that's with God. But then Jesus follows that immediately by telling us about this one whom we should fear. And here's what he says. He says, your father notices the smallest sparrow. And we all know that 
a sparrow is really worth no more than about a half a penny. That's what Scripture says. And you, you're worth a bazillion sparrows. How much more do you think God cares for you if God gives that kind of attention to a half a penny sparrow? I mean, God knows the number of hairs on your head. And he knows that for some of you it's easier to count than for others, but he knows them all. He knows you that well, knows you best, and loves you most. So follow the logic here. The fear that you have of them. Begin to replace that fear with a fear of the one who actually holds it all in God's hands. Now know that the one that really merits that kind of fear loves you eternally, immensely, incredibly. Amazing love, perfect love, and here's the truth of Scripture, perfect love pushes away fear. So if I have placed my attention in the right place, my fear begins to dissipate because the one on whom I'm focused loves me that much. Why then should I be afraid? Jesus then says something that actually feels like it contradicts Scripture. But it makes a whole bunch of sense. He says, if you don't acknowledge me before others, I won't acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. If you acknowledge me before others, I'll acknowledge you. I've said on numerous occasions that um, we're called to follow in Jesus' footsteps to preach, teach, and heal as well. And that preaching is really how we live our lives. It's really not what I'm doing up here. Preaching is how we live out our faith and allow the good news to flow through us. It's preaching with our living. So it seems to me that one of the best ways to understand Jesus' words is to watch how Jesus lived. That will help us to interpret his words. I shouldn't just take his words out of context. I should watch how Jesus lives because that is faith in action or that is love in action or that is his teaching in action. We have in Scripture a disciple, Peter, who denies Jesus in front of others. Not just once, but three times at a really crucial time in Jesus' earthly ministry. Three times. In fact, it says he calls down curses. This is like the prime example of this piece where you don't acknowledge me before the Father and I won't acknowledge you. Except that's not what Jesus did. Jesus brought about complete restoration for Peter. Complete grace. If we're paying attention to the way in which Jesus lives out what Jesus teaches, then this story of Peter has to help to define what this means for me. 
Peter was not only restored, but was embraced by Jesus. Now I know you can say something about, yeah, but the Holy Spirit wasn't given at Pentecost yet and those kinds. I hear you, but Peter was a disciple of Jesus, one of his very closest companions. What this tells me is that this passage is not about me messing up or not getting it right or, or not living it out in the best way that I could have. This is Jesus saying, if you choose not to follow me, I give you the freedom to do that. If you choose not to be a follower of Christ, you have the freedom. And I'll acknowledge that before the Father. I give you the freedom to not pursue this faith journey. And if your actions over a lifetime speak in that regard, then I will give you what you've asked, and that is to live apart from the Father. But if you've chosen to be on this journey with me, Jesus is laying down his own life for us. That's how much love and grace there is in this relationship. But I've got to tell you, this passage doesn't get any easier. Jesus says, I really didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. So much so that a man will be separated from his father, a a daughter from her mother, a daughter-in-law from mother-in-law. In fact, the passage that immediately precedes verse 24, the passage from 20 to 23, speaks about um, a brother being against brother and a father turning in a son. In this passage, it says that a person's worst enemies will be his own household. Good news, wow, where is it here? God, help me to find what it is I'm supposed to learn in this place. Let me, once again, give a small piece of explanation, but then dig deeper into this. This language was not uncommon to the Jewish people who would hear it from Matthew as Matthew writes this nor would it be unfamiliar to the audience to whom Jesus is speaking. Before Jesus shows up on the scene, there were writings of rabbis who spoke about the coming Messiah. And this is almost word for word for what they predicted would happen when the Messiah came. Households would be split. Family members would be against family members. And certainly there is some of this that came true in the first century persecution as people turned in family members for what they believed. That did occur. But it's also familiar language to this audience that the rabbis spoke about a time when the Messiah will come. And when that occurs, father will turn against son, brother against brother, daughter against mother. In essence, Jesus is saying, this is what you've read about. I want to tell you, the time's come. The Messiah's here. This is what you've been told? Know that the Messiah has shown up. We are in those moments now. But I still have to wrestle with what it looks like when families are torn apart or in distress 
are struggling. The title of this message is Families in Distress. I, I don't think that God in this passage tells us at all that we are seeking out families that are struggling, that we're supposed to be the cause of that. It is, though, sometimes a consequence of obedience. I don't think we face the same kind of persecution that took place in first century. We certainly don't in this country. There are other places where we may face some significant persecution, but not so much in this country. But there are still times where when people change within a family system, it creates a discomfort. It creates chaos. It creates division. And the notion here of bringing a sword is probably not a sword of battle. It is probably more like we would conceive of a sword of division, like a surgeon's scalpel that needed to cut out the cancer and needed to make sure that the margins were clean and cut enough for that to happen. That kind of dividing, separating, that's probably more of the imagery that's here in this passage. But I think of the other passage that was read by Chip from Genesis, Genesis chapter 21 and verse 10, we find that Sarah, the mother of Isaac, the wife of Abram, has gotten very, very frustrated that Hagar and her son Ishmael might share in the inheritance of her son. And so she banishes them. Talk about a family in distress. This was a problem of Sarah's own making. God had promised Abraham and Sarah that they'd have a child. Sarah didn't trust that God could pull this off, so Sarah hatched the plan that the maidservant would sleep with her husband and give birth to a son, which happened. Hagar is the maidservant, Ishmael is the son. But God does come through and Sarah gets pregnant. And now Sarah projects all of her frustration and ang anger onto Hagar and Ishmael and banishes them from the household, sends them away to the desert. That's a terrible thing to do. Ishmael's an innocent child. By every account from Scripture, a wonderful young man grows up to be. This... This response in an incredibly difficult, blended family. Because that's what it is. And Sarah tries to figure out a way to orchestrate the future of her family. I don't think that it is far different than many of our families. Uh, it, it, this morning in... Um, First service, Victor Levinsky, in picking the hymns, picked uh, hymn number 727, which is the Christian home, which is a nice melody and beautiful words. By the end of this hymn, I felt so guilty about all the ways in which my home did not line up to this hymn. It was, I stopped singing because it spoke about every small act and act of praise and the prayers and devotions that happened all the time and the peace and unity things. And I go, ah! Great for you, writer, that that was how it worked for you. 
I love my family, but, but there is a reality that sets in about the families that we have. And if yours is fantastic and fits beautifully that imagery, God bless you. Um, you're sitting next to a family that that's probably not true of. And right now they're thinking that they're sitting next to a family and you that it's not true of. So across the board here, there are issues that we face in our homes that are an incredible strain. And they come in a variety of shapes and forms and sizes. Some things that just seem almost universally true, and then other things where we wonder, are we the only person on the planet that's facing this issue? I mean, things like this journey from grade school to mid-high, that transition for most children in most family systems where in grade school it's like parents are everything. And then we're, they're learning about God and so God kind of falls second and then their friends are important. And then it seems like in a flash, like just a day passes and then all of a sudden friends are the most important of everything. Gods may be in there somewhere, and parents have no idea what they're talking about. And it just turned upside down. How did that happen overnight? Did we do something different? No. That's just the shift that takes place as we grow. Couples who have just determined that this relationship they have, this new marriage... There is nothing that could ever, ever undermine the constant romantic feelings and joy that they have in this relationship. How beautifully naive. <laughs> if nothing happens prior to this, the arrival of the first child who never sleeps through the night and takes all of our time and all of a sudden all of our money and before we even got this one out of diapers, the second one comes. And I can't even spell the word romance anymore. It just changes as the family system changes. As senior adult parents need to be cared for, as grandchildren come into a picture, as job situations change, the stress, the distress, the tension, the struggle. I mean, it, it is acknowledged in this passage of Scripture that being a disciple doesn't mean that there aren't going to be any difficult issues to be faced. And in fact, Jesus is saying, be prepared. There are moments where you think it actually increased the strength. We all know that it's true that when one member of a family makes a dramatic shift in their journey, it affects everyone else in the family. And 
To be honest, in some ways, it's not all that different if the change is for the bad or the difficult, or the change is for the good. Both of them upset the system. It causes everyone else to try and figure out how do I dance around this or adjust and I don't want to adjust. And it creates, at times, havoc or frustration. When a black sheep of the family decides, I'm no longer going to carry the weight of this black sheep stuff, I'm going to force the rest of the family to deal with their own stuff. I'm done carrying that whole load. Well, there's this momentary cheer for the person who makes a wonderful change in their life, and then there's this long-standing panic of, what do we do now? What does this say about us? What if people find out about our family system? What if people learn what's behind the smile? What if people figure out? What if we're all in this together? We never bought the facade to begin with because we know that in the midst of faith, there is struggle in trying to figure out how we move forward. And here's the powerful piece, I think, of this passage and what Jesus teaches us is that faith without all of the answers and pain, distress, and struggle, they don't negate one another. In fact, the promise is that faith will help us navigate the struggle. It doesn't provide automatic answers for every issue, but it does provide hope. It does provide expectation. It does provide new ways to think through old issues. I, I don't have any great miracle solutions for the problems that are being faced. I'll offer some ideas that arise out of Scripture. But I also have to say that the circumstances you face, they don't always align perfectly with some great solution that might provide an answer for you. First, I think it's really important to acknowledge that tension. To just say that that happens for faithful Christians, for faithful disciples of Christ, that we hit tough places, roadblocks, personality conflicts, issues that kind of hold us frozen for a while. And when we say, oh, I know that that's true, it begins to take away the guilt of somehow I haven't lived faithfully enough, I haven't prayed enough, I haven't done enough devotions, I haven't surrendered enough to God. And everything then becomes oppressive about my faith. That's not the call. It is a hopeful faith that allows us to hold that tension simultaneously with an expectation of an unfolding future that God is holding. Secondly, I would just encourage you, in the midst of difficult struggles, don't keep doing the same thing that you've been doing 
that keeps adding to the struggle that you're in. If it hasn't worked the last four times you've tried it, it's not really likely that the fifth time is going to all of a sudden magically spring on the scene and everybody's going to go, great. Here's the tough thing, is that there often is a time in the past when it did work well. My methodology with my four-year-old doesn't work real well when my child is 18 years old. The same thing with other issues in your life. Solutions that were helpful and beneficial at one stage don't always play out over a lifetime. Don't keep over and over again doing the same thing. As dangerous as it sometimes feels, try something different. Even if it doesn't work, Try something different. Talk to others. Listen. Give it a shot. See what occurs. Thirdly, be a learner. As I read through Scripture over and over again, God desires to teach us. And so often God's best tools are the people that God has placed in our life. It is so easy for us to want to speak into the lives of others. But how much better we navigate that tension when we take the posture of a learner and say, okay, God, What might you be teaching me through my difficult child, through my parent who doesn't listen to me, through the struggle that I'm facing at work, through the tension that I have with my spouse? God has brought all kinds of people into your life. Don't be confused thinking that you are the one to be the Messiah to everyone that you run into. There's only one Messiah. God's allowed us to move into places where we learn from one another. And if I will listen well to someone else, it is amazing how that begins to change the dynamic of the relationship. From whom can I learn? Can I learn from my worst enemy? Scripture says absolutely. Can I learn from the one who is painful and oppositional? I probably have more to learn there than I have to learn from the kindest friend who's never pushed me at all. Become a learner in the midst of your journey and see if some of those tensions begin to shift who you are. So many times in our homes, one of our family members speaks up and our inclination, the thing that drives us is try to provide a solution to solve the problem when in fact the person who's spoken up simply longs to be heard, to be known, to offer up something that sounds like the form of a question, something that sounds like an issue that, I got the insight, I can offer this. 
And sometimes that's appropriate. This is not a hard, fast rule. But I would say so many times, somebody who's said something in your journey just wants to be known by you. That's what I long for. I I want somebody to know my heart, not to fix it, to know my issues, not to give me five easy steps like I'm giving you right now. Four easy steps on how to solve all family problems. A call instead to be a listener and to let a person know that they have been heard well and known. Jesus doesn't end with that in this passage. The last two verses of this reading, 38 and 39. Jesus says, Take up your cross and lose your life. Follow me. That's what take up your cross means. And lose yourself in me. Give yourself over to this, and it's as if this is tied to a promise, and you will find life like you never dreamed possible. A life where giving away doesn't come out of guilt or trying to live up to some benchmark, but instead is this natural outflow of having given your life to Jesus. A whole new perspective on resources and time and relationships. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. And lose your life in Christ. The life that is offered is incredible. Not free from the tension, not free from distress, probably not free from some name-calling and people who get frustrated and push you away. But behind all of that, it's no longer living for the expectations of others. It's becoming the healthiest you, the best you, the Christ blessed you that you were created to be. It's a call to allow others to do what they have to do in their own journey and not carrying everybody else's burdens, just dealing with what Christ is calling you to do and to be. That's losing yourself in Jesus. And the promise, you will find life, amazing life, incredible life. That's the call. Father in heaven, this morning we are challenged by a passage of scripture that hits really close to home. We certainly don't live in a place where persecution is a daily issue. But we certainly live in a time where our families seem stretched. The configurations of our families don't seem to match anyone else. We're trying to make things work with multiple moving parts. We're trying to make sense 
out of responses and interactions that sometimes don't seem to make sense at all. We live out of our history instead of living out of our hope. We live out of what has been true in the past instead of wondering what's true now. And it's not as if your truth ever changes, but the way in which we apply your truth, oh Lord, we need your help. We certainly need your grace and your forgiveness. For the times where our actions have not honored you, our behavior has not blessed others, where we've lived into the worst of our health instead of the best of who we are. Lord, you've not called us to face this as a strategy on our own. You've empowered us. So this morning, give us courage to step into that. Give us grace to let go of the things that have kept us chained. The pieces that have um, kept us tethered. That held us from swimming into the deep end. (laughs) Father, we want to splash in the pool of your grace and empowerment. We want to celebrate hope and expectations, even in the midst of distress. So enter into our family spaces. Help us to not live under the burden of guilt, the worry that we haven't done something just right, the anxiety that somehow too much time has passed and we've missed golden opportunities. Father, you are the God of redemption. You take us right where we are at and breathe new life into this dust. Create in us a garden of hope. Call us to newness and have the courage to try. As we sing, as we pray, Jesus, move in our lives that this passage might be your promise of hope to us this morning. Amen.